Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Economics Podcast, I guess, <laughs> where we've been talking a lot about economics and uh, I don't know, maybe we should just change the name. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by Nizar Hassan and we've got a special guest uh, with us today from Executive Magazine, the Economics and Policy Editor, Jeremy Arbeed. Friend of the show. This is your second time on the show, right? Second time, yeah. Welcome back, yeah, man. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be back, and congratulations uh, on season two. Thanks so much. Thank uh, you. Jeremy is here to help us talk about the budget. Okay, some people may think it's boring, but no, this thing is crazy and it's awesome, and we are going to dive into it and tell you why it is so important and so interesting in this podcast. But first, we need to get to the news. And last week, we had some major street action, right, Nizar? Yes, indeed. There was a protest that we were anticipating, uh, not yesterday, the Sunday before that. And it was organized by the Communist Party and a number of activist groups with progressive tendencies. Uh, the protest was m- mostly about economic issues and the unified statement given by one of the activists demanded things like tax justice, specifically reforming the tax system. And it has like specific demands on which taxes should be reformed in a way that redistributes the losses of the economic crisis onto people who can uh, afford uh, to pay for them. Uh, The protest was actually much bigger than a lot of people expected, including myself. I was there and I was like, I just was trying to take every all the protesters into one photo and I couldn't do that because there was like at least 6,000, 7,000, up to 10,000 protesters there. So it was a really successful protest in terms of numbers and it kind of shook things around because a lot of people were surprised why all of these very, you know, different groups like Beirut Medinete and the Communist Party coming together and making one statement. But I think it gave a nice image of the urgency of um, economic reform. Um, And those protests happened on the same day as the Arab Economic and Social Development Conference, right? Uh, Which which we talked about last week, but we weren't able to get into because we recorded before it actually happened. Uh, But now all of that is in the past, and we know the outcome of the summit. The outcome is that it was generally considered a failure, I think it's fair to say. Uh, You know, out of the whatever seven or so heads of state that were supposed to come, a total of three ended up showing up. Michelle Aoun, of course, from Lebanon, the leader of Mauritania, um, the leader of Somalia, by the way, who was supposed to show up, pulled out at the last minute. Uh, and then the third was the Emir of Qatar, who came for like a very quick hour or something like that and then left. There was also, speaking of attendance, an issue of the invitation of a certain Druze Sheikh. Yes, so the president, uh, Michel Aoun, invited Naim Hassan, uh, the Sheikh Al-Ail of the Druze community, who is the head of the Druze Spiritual Council, a formal body um, that is represented in the state. And at the same time, invited Sheikh Nasruddin Al-Gharib, who is another Sheikh Ail proposed by Talal Irslan, who is Wali Jumblat's competitor on the Druze, uh, in the Druze scene. And this goes back to 2006, when uh, Jumblat proposed that Naim Hassan should be the next uh, Sheikh Al-Ail. Irslan proposed this other guy. But one of them is a the former one, which is Naim Hassan, which we always hear about. And the other one is much less known, and he's, he's not, of course, um, acknowledged in the same manner. But Aoun invited him because he's very close to Irslan, I guess. And Jumblat and the Druze community and the official body were very upset with it. Yeah, Irslan ran on an FPM-supported ticket in the last elections, and he is considered now part of the FPM's strong Lebanon bloc yeah. in parliament. Um So moving on to the economic outcomes of the conference, not just the political intrigue surrounding it. There was $200 million was decided to form a technology and digital economy investment fund. Um, And also Aoun suggested that an Arab bank for reconstruction uh, be formed, sort of like as a funding vehicle for reconstruction of Syria, Yemen, etc. 
um, and a meeting is supposed to be held in the next three months to discuss the economic feasibility of this. Yeah, and there was also just the reiteration of previous proposals, which are sort of things that are geared towards integration of the region, a customs union, and also... Um, electric some networks, right? Electric networks, but these have all been things that have been on you know, the table from previous summits that just have continued to roll over. And so like when you say um, a sort of failure of this summit, uh, it's just a reiteration of these previous uh, promises made at uh, other summits. Lots of talk. Lots of talk. But there was one key economic-related uh, uh, outcome uh, relating to Lebanon. Right. This was not a part of the actual summit itself, but it came directly after the summit. During the summit, we heard rumors flying that first the Emir of Qatar was going to be coming and that he was going to be giving money to Lebanon. And, and this actually panned out. He did show up on Sunday. And then I, I think it was, was it Monday or was it late Sunday that it, it was announced that uh, Qatar would be buying $500 million in Lebanese debt. Which we still don't have the specifics to. We don't know what the terms of that buy is, if it's uh, something that Qatar will, will hold to maturity or if it will be ended up being floated on the secondary market. We just don't know yet. So, Assuming uh, that we understand what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so what Qatar agreed to was to buy $500 million uh, in Lebanese sovereign debt. And we don't know if they're going to just hold on to that until that commitment reaches its maturity date, which we don't know. Okay. Or if they'll turn around and sell that debt on the secondary market, so to say, kind of like easy way to break that down, I guess. Yeah, so we I don't mean, know what actually Qatar committed to other than this $500 million. All right. Right. We don't even know the term of the debt, right? We don't know if these are like 10-year notes or 25-year yes. notes. Like, we have no idea. Yeah, that's what I was trying to reach uh, at a maturity. Uh, but then late last week, Lebanon's Minister of Finance met with the Qatari ambassador to Lebanon. But was there any sort of agreement or... The statement from the Ministry of Finance on that meeting was literally one line long. Yeah, it was just a one line sentence to say, this guy met this guy. Um, yeah, but but I mean, so this this five hundred million dollars, like we're we're assuming that this comes through, like this this is um, good for confidence, but this is not like this is sort of a drop in the bucket. Yeah, Le- Lebanon has close to or or about eighty five billion dollars in debt, and so like half a billion, it, it's something, but it's not like this huge game changer. Yeah, I think uh, you had Dan Azi on before a couple episodes back, and he pointed out on Twitter that this five hundred million will sort of finance uh, the balance of payments uh, for another 10 days or so. So we'll be able to continue buying our, you know, imported products from Europe or imported products from the United States for another few weeks with this money. Right, right, right. Which I, I mean, yeah, true. But it was it was good for confidence, which is important because the next day, I, I believe on Monday, Moody's came out with an absolutely brutal downgrade of Lebanon's uh, sovereign debt. They downgraded it from like the lowest B level, uh, which is still like junk bond status or whatever, like don't invest unless like you're really into taking risks down to C level, the, the highest C level. And, and basically this is just above the level where default is imminent. And in their letter explaining why they downgraded Lebanon's sovereign debt, they, they laid things out in, in a pretty in pretty stark terms, I think. The story goes something like this. Lebanon has a whole lot of debt, and Moody's just doesn't seem to really believe officials when they're promising to pay all of this debt back. 
Yeah, and so Moody's making this decision comes quite quickly after the Minister of Finance was misquoted by Al-Akhbar in saying that Lebanon has plans to restructure its debt. And a couple days after that, there was a meeting, a high-level meeting with the president and the central bank governor to kind of correct what the minister of finance had said and to say, no, actually, we didn't have plans. So a week or so after that episode happened, Moody's comes out and says, we're going to downgrade, which I think is quite a quick action. And I think kind of shows that either Moody's reached out to state officials and didn't get assurances or got those assurances and doesn't trust them. So it's a big move and it's um, a negative event. But I, I still don't think that we should get to the point where we say the sky is falling. I, I would just point out on that, that we don't know whether the finance minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, was misquoted in Al-Khbar or not. Part of Moody's like uh, reaction is based also on the confusion because there seems to be no government policy and looking at the numbers, seems like Lebanon is not going to be able to pay back. Exactly. And, and this is what Moody's goes on to say. Not only do they not trust it when officials come together and say, oh, no, no, we, we got this. We're going to pay everybody back. But also they say, even if a new government's formed and even if like they want to do stuff, it seems as though there isn't a whole lot that can actually be done to fix this problem. They seem very deeply skeptical that even like a new government that is committed to paying back the debt could actually do that. Um, And on top of that, they say that BDL, the central bank, is increasingly boxed in. And so the big word in this uh, ratings downgrade was default. Moody seemed to think that the, the, new, the new rating was sort of like a middle ground between two different things. The, the possibility, on the one hand, that Lebanon could just avoid default. It, the report says the country has a quote-unquote proven track record of avoiding default. And, and in that case, Moody's implies basically that the rating should be higher than what it is. But on the other hand, they also say if there is a default, it seems as though Moody's expects that the losses would be quite massive, like larger than what this rating implies. So the rating mm-hmm. should be lower. So on one hand, you've got the rating should be higher. On the other hand, it should be lower somewhere in the middle. That was, that was how I read uh, the, the, their report. The okay. bottom line, Moody seems to believe that Lebanon is creeping towards default. Okay, but I think it's important to iterate for our listeners here that that doesn't mean that Lebanon is on the verge of default. That means that if things continue on this path for X number of months or maybe longer, then there is the possibility that there could be a default. But as things stand tomorrow or next month, barring some major episode, barring some major political episode or economic shock, which is certainly possible, but uh, I think it's important to kind of downplay the um, fear-mongering that's been going on and to remember that this contributes to an erosion of trust, which uh, would accelerate this trend. Right, and, and, and to be absolutely clear on this, Moody's does not say default is imminent, at all, that is a whole nother ratings category below where Lebanon is at right now. Uh, so the question is, can politicians pull it together right now? And and on that front, on the cabinet formation front, uh, which is the, the first step that's required for them to pull things together, as of today, uh, it has been 251 days without a government, 249 since Hariri was tasked with forming a government. And there there seems to be a new push from Hariri to form a government. He said that this, this week would be decisive 
And and according to my colleague uh, Hussein Dakrub uh, at the Daily Star, he basically gives out three possibilities. He says Hariri was apparently left with three options: form a new government, reactivate the caretaker government, or step aside. Well, other than Hariri seeming to push on this now, I mean, me personally, I don't really see a whole lot of potential for a new cabinet to be formed because we, we're still facing the problem of the Sunni six, right? Their demand that they get a seat in cabinet, which would come at the expense of either Hariri or Aoun, neither of which appears ready to compromise yet. I don't know. We'll see what happens this week, but to me, it seems a little bit unlikely. That's option one. Uh, option two, step aside. Uh, the future people are saying, no, Hariri is not going to do this. So forget about that. Uh, that leaves option the option of reactivating the caretaker cabinet which I guess maybe what all of this might end up, what might lead up to is the caretaker cabinet meeting and taking care of some extraordinary business that needs to happen. Um, and, and speaking of not having a cabinet right now, one of the consequences of this is that we are facing a fiscal cliff this week. Uh, at the end of the month, once we go from January 31st to February 1st, all of a sudden the legal mechanism for funding the government for like paying employees, funding state institutions, all of that, that legal mechanism expires according to Article 86 of the Constitution. So is it like a shutdown in the, in the American sense? Well, uh, no, that that's not going to happen. And, and every every politician is very, very clear that like this is this is just not going to happen. We the state is not going to shut down. The government's not going to shut down. People will continue to get paid. State institutions will remain open. And that's because there's this like legal principle of the continuity of public services here in Lebanon. Basically, you can't shut down the government. That, that's just a fundamental like legal principle. Uh, the reason that we are in this situation is that there is no budget, uh, and that's because there is no cabinet. And the Constitution provides this thing, the provisional 12th, the 112th mechanism, facility, whatever you want to call it, that it says if there isn't a budget for the following year, at the end of December, because in Lebanon, the fiscal year is the calendar year, same thing. If, if there's no budget in place on January 1st, then there's a special mechanism, the 112th mechanism, basically says you can fund everything for the month of January. You just take last year's budget, divide it by 12, and you give that out to the state institutions. But that facility ends at the end of January, according to the Constitution. Now, we, we've run into this problem before. Back in 2006, they did not pass a budget, or they did not pass a budget for 2006. So at the very beginning of February in 2006, Parliament passed a law, Law 717, that basically said, eh, forget, forget about what the Constitution says, you can continue using the Provisional 12th facility throughout the year. And that was used to fund the government all the way for, for like 12 years until the 2017 budget was passed. For 12 years, yeah, to continue spending at 2005 budget levels every year. But they got to a point like around 2008 or 2009 where this amount of money wasn't enough. So they started passing extra budgetary laws. Um, right, they had to they, top things up. Right. Yeah, and there were a lot of Treasury advance decrees, which, uh, you know, I don't know how that gets reconstituted. Maybe we talk about that when we talk about auditing. But I think there will be some sort of legislative measure passed similar to the one twelfth rule uh, within the next week or so yeah, well, uh, by I, Parliament. I, I spoke to um, somebody who sort of has knowledge of what's going on. And and right now at, at sort of the highest levels, I mean, we had a, a meeting between the President Aoun, the Finance Minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, and the, uh, the Chair of Parliament's Finance and Budget Committee, Ibrahim Kanaan. And those three had this meeting this week, this past week, 
and came out and said, nope, we are going to continue funding everything and we, we have this solution or whatever. Well, somebody, an anonymous source told me that basically what's happening right now is politicians, high-ranking politicians are discussing one of two things, either to pass a law like they did in 2006, or there's also a second option though. And that is for there to be sort of a pre-authorization document signed between President Aoun, the caretaker prime minister, Saad Hariri, and finance minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, to sort of like pre-authorize all of the funds to keep flowing. And then once there is a new cabinet, there would be a decree issued that actually authorized things. So this is sort of like a weird, I I don't understand how this is legal or how this works, but the the source assured me, uh, and I've, I've heard... Um, from another, from a second source as well, like, no, this actually happens. There are these decisions that are signed to keep the government running sometimes whenever there's an executive void. They're they're not made public. We have no oversight of them. Like, I, I have no idea what one of these documents looks like, but apparently this has been done uh, in the past. And apparently last year, something co- sort of similar to this happened because we did, we, we went over the fiscal cliff last year. Because if you remember, the 2018 budget was not passed until March. So can I point out how problematic this is for issues uh, of transparency and anti-corruption? Because this document uh, totally contradicts the the spirit of transparency. Yeah. and, And that is one major, major issue with it. And then the other major issue is just constitutionality. Like, come on, it goes against Article 86 of the Constitution either either way, whether it's a law or or whether it's uh, some sort of pre-authorization to a later decree either of these options would extend the 112 facility and would therefore violate the constitution. And you have to go like all the way down to like that, back to that basic principle of the continuity of public services in order to get like a real constitutional legal basis for this, which is okay. Yeah. In, in a pinch, maybe you have to do this, but this is uh, as uh, Karim Daher, uh, who is a public finance expert explained to me that this is a problem of the politicians own making. So they're, backing themselves into a corner and then saying, oh, well, we have to sort of violate the Constitution this way in order to preserve this other legal principle, which is the continuity of public services. Okay, so all of this sort of illustrates a lot of the problems and and a lot of just the politics, I think, the insane politics that surround the budget and the budget process, which we want to get into in this episode. What is the budget? How does it work? What are the problems with it and sort of the politics uh, that surround it? Um, and, and so basically, like really quickly for you guys, we want to go through an overview. The budget is actually like a law, right? It, it is a law that is first off prepared by the finance ministry, and then it goes to the full council of ministers, and then it goes from there to the parliament, and then it's passed and it becomes a law. And, and this process takes a really long time. Uh, most of the year is yeah, about six to eight months. And uh, at the beginning of the process, it starts in April, right? So you have the line ministries sending their budgets to the Ministry of Finance, and then the Ministry of Finance compiles it and sends it to the cabinet in August. At the same time in August, the Ministry of Finance should also be auditing what they call a pre-audit or, or a closure of accounts uh, of the last year's budget. They do that and send it to the Court of Accounts. So the Court of Accounts gets those pre-audit numbers, audits it, and sends its findings to Parliament. So there's several streams happening at the same time in like the second half of the year from August to October. And it's the audit, it's uh, uh, the passage of the budget. 
And so from there, once Parliament gets both the budget that the cabinet's approved from the Ministry of Finance, from the Lime Ministries, and once the Parliament gets the audit from, actually, I think the audit comes through cabinet as well. So I think the audit comes to Parliament, from cabinet, from the Court of Accounts, from the Ministry of Finance. Parliament is supposed to make a decision about both of those uh, legal texts and pass them into a law, one as a budget law and one as a closure of accounts or an audit law. And that is what their their primary mission during their October session, right? Constitutionally, that's the first thing they're supposed to undertake at the start of the that legislative session in October is the budget. Okay, and and so this is how things are supposed to work in theory. In practice, however, obviously things don't quite go to plan. Now, now the first part of it with like the Ministry of Finance preparing everything that actually usually does. My understanding is basically every year, I think. During that 2005 to 2016 interregnum, the finance minister did all the preparations and everything, submitted it to the Council of Ministers by September 1st of, of each year for the following year. Um, but then, like, that's where the problems usually started. And some years, they would actually, like, the budget would make it through cabinet and be sent on to the parliament. And in other years, like, it wouldn't even make it through cabinet. But basically, once the politicians get involved, then you start having major problems and this, the whole process can break down. Yeah, I think in general, that's right. Every year we've had a draft budget, but every year we haven't been able to pass that budget. So we, we've we had one in 2018, a budget in 2017, and before that, the budget in 2005. The reason why we often run into this issue of not being able to pass a budget is both political and it's also technical. So the technical aspect of it is that, okay, after the Civil War, the Ministry of Finance, like every other state institution, was basically gutted and destroyed. And they have, over the, you know, the 20, 25 years since then, had to reconstitute public accounts. And this takes time. And so even to this day, the Ministry of Finance says, well, we're still putting back, we're still reconstituting each fiscal year going back in time. And I think the last time I talked to the director general at the Ministry of Finance, Adam Bifani, he said they had gotten up to like year 2010 or 2011, and they had a couple more years to go. So at least in theory, then, since we've had two budgets passed now, there could be an audit of the past two years. Like, that's how I understand it, but I don't understand why that hasn't happened, why pre-audit numbers aren't going from the Ministry of Finance for 2017, for 2018, to the Court of Accounts and uh, onward. And this has really just become such a huge problem that the politics of it is you have one side accusing the other side of, let's say, misallocation, mismanagement, but in reconstituting these accounts, the director general of the Ministry of Finance has acknowledged that there's been huge anomalies. He says it's not for him to, to disclose. It's up to Parliament to decide uh, how to disclose what those anomalies are and what to do about it. But we've never gotten to that point because of the politics. Yeah, and, and this audit issue has also caused other problems, right? After the passage of the 2018 budget, uh, that that was challenged in court uh, by the Qatar party. Yeah, you know, you have to have 10 members of parliament and there's other officials that can challenge laws as well. Um, but 10 members of parliament uh, need to sign on to a challenge to the Constitutional Council, which is Lebanon's highest courts. 
And uh, they did so for the budget law of 2018. They did so for the tax law of 2017. And there was changes made to the tax law because of that. Um, but concerning the 2018 budget law, the Constitutional Council ended up striking down several articles but the, because they said, you know, these articles are not directly related to budgetary matters. But their main conclusion or their main ruling was more of like sort of spiritual violation of the Constitution. They said, well, because you haven't done X, meaning audit, and because you haven't stuck to the constitutional timeline and the public accounting timeline for creating a budget and passing the budget, this budget law is unconstitutional. But the court said well, it's better to have a budget than not to have a budget. So that ultimately, they didn't strike down the, the budget law. Right. What, what is the worst breach of the Constitution? Having this budget that broke a lot of rules or not having a budget altogether, the court said the latter. Exactly. And if you look at these budget documents as well, so apart from the process, just what, what, would you, what you would see is, first off, there's a bunch of articles, right? It's a law. And usually it's something like the first section of the law is just like devoted to it, like an overview of the budget. The The second section would be devoted to sort of capital expenditures, big infrastructure projects that go that span multiple years, uh, highways or airport expansion or the, the fiber expansion that's being rolled out right now by Ogero. These things are included in the second section. The third section would be about revenues and taxes, stuff like that. And then the fourth section is usually, you know, like, all right, these are various other articles that need to get put in here uh, that don't fit neatly in any of the other sections. But then after that, you get to the really interesting stuff. After that, there's just like a whole bunch of tables, just a shit ton of data. Ben loves tables. <laughs> Such yeah, a nerd. I, I love tables, yes. If you get excited about the tables, I mean, two nerds discussing politics is a good description for this podcast. But now now we have three nerds in the room and like it's a bit overwhelming. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in, in these tables, you, you really get a granular sense of how the budget is constructed. And it is complicated, to say the least. You can sort of like slice and dice these things in a lot of different ways. Like, oh, is the, are these, you know, capital expenditures or not? Are, you know, which ministry has what? And then like, for what what kinds of expenditures are these, which would like cut across different ministries, different institutions, and and uh, in, in the different parts of the budget? You know, I I highly recommend to anybody who's actually interested in this topic. You don't have to go through the hundreds of pages that exist in the budget of this, but like take a look, take a gander at this stuff. Uh, if if you can read a bit of Arabic, it really will elucidate exactly how the budget is done. If you just take a look at a few of these tables. So that's a great explanation of how the budget document is all put together. But let me ask, where does the money go? Or actually, where does it not go? Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting question. Yeah, and I think what you were uh, talking about in terms of capital expenditure is the first thing to mention here, because from 1992 to 2016, we only spent 7% of our expenditure on capital expenditure. And this means investing in infrastructure, which is basically the main process in which government um, invests in economic growth and economic prosperity. So because the budget for economic for capital expenditure has been so low for all of these years since the, the end of the civil war, we have the bad infrastructure that we have today. And we've mentioned this before, I guess, on the podcast. Yeah. So in 2017, CapEx totaled 5% of all public spending. And in 2018, the allocation in the, the budget law, in the 2018 budget law, was for for 1.4 billion dollars only, which is not a lot of money. 
I mean, the total budget, just to give listeners an idea, the total budget is about $16 billion. So if you're spending just, you know, $1.4 billion on that, that's pretty measly. Yeah, roads are expensive. The airport expansion is expensive. Installing fiber infrastructure is expensive. Expanding water and sewage networks is expensive. And so $1.4 billion isn't going to go very far. And that's why we have to go to places like SED and seek, uh, you know, pledges from donors to to lend us money. So if if that's where the money doesn't go, then where does the money actually go to? So mainly... It goes to ministries, right? So the defense ministry, for example, in the 2018 budget got $1.9 billion. Uh, education, $1.1 billion. Uh, interior, $1 billion. The prime minister's office also got $1 billion. The health ministry got $450 million. So this is basically how much money each minister gets. But then if we divide it by function, 35% of uh, the budget goes to salaries, around that number to public uh, and civil servant salaries. Then you have the subsidies to the to Electricité du Liban, the national electricity company, which amount to 9% of the total spending. And then the big chunk, the other big chunk is debt servicing. And this is 32% of total spending according to this 2017 budget, uh, which is the budget on about from which we're taking these numbers. But if we see it over uh, the period from 1992 to 2016, it's 36% on average of our expenditure is going to service the debt. And this, in the McKinsey report that we talked about last episode, this is pro- pro- projected to uh, go even higher soon. And we, this this has become the main drain of resources for the government. Okay, so let's talk about the deficit, because right now debt servicing is taking up like a third of of the budget and it's expected to grow. And that's one of the main drivers of the deficit, right? Totally. I mean, when you look at the primary surplus and deficit of the government over the last five years, not the last five years, let's say 2013, 2017, where we have a full year data. In each of these years, except for 2013 and every other year, we had surplus, primary surplus. So in terms of what we're spending on things, including the electricity company versus what we're getting, we were getting a bit more than we were spending. And then when you calculate the debt and the debt servicing part, it becomes completely skewed. Yeah, when, when we're talking about primary surplus or primary deficit, we're just talking about what would the budget be if we didn't have any debts to pay off? Exactly. And uh, as an example, in 2014, for example, you had a surplus of $1.3 billion. But then when the debt is calculated, debt servicing, it becomes a deficit of $3 billion. In 2015, it was a bit similar with a deficit of $4 billion, $5 billion in 2016, etc. Even in 2017, recently, we had a surplus of $1.4 billion completely uh, vanished because of debt servicing and became a deficit of $3.75 billion. And it's really important to stress on this because a lot of people think of the Lebanese state as a completely inefficient body that is spending so much money on places we don't know. And this is the main economic problem. No, this is not the main economic problem. The issue is that we're spending a large chunk of our expenditure as a government on something that produces absolutely no value and benefits no one in society. But is that happening because we have no idea of where we're spending our money? Like we have a budget law, but we have no audit of those budget numbers. So are we spending money in a way that is efficient? And are we spending money in a way that maybe for Project X, we don't need to take out X amount of dollars in in financing? Maybe if we better allocated the money, we would have been able to pay for whatever program. But we have no way of knowing because we've never audited public finances since 2003. 
totally totally but we know for sure that our revenues as a state are too limited to cover like future True. investment and future expenditures right so as things stand right now the more budget deficits we have the more debt we're going to have so it keeps going up as long as we have deficits and and that's why everybody talks about us being in sort of this on, on this unsustainable trajectory where we just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper into debt and debt servicing goes up keeps going up and it drives the deficit higher which means we go deeper again i i feel like all of this is off of the clouds a bit though but how does this what, what does this really mean though how, how does it actually hurt the country on a on on a real level in several ways i mean we're borrowing against our future to buy things to consume things that we bring in abroad using dollars and this is where the point of unsustainability comes in like we don't have enough dollars circulating into the economy to continue acting in this way the the simple way to explain it is that not enough dollars are flowing into the economy and too many dollars are flowing out of the economy for things that we consume, imports from abroad, you know, and uh, paying interest on debt, which continues to grow, continues to restrict us and box us in further and further. And it's gotten to a point where Moody's made its decision to downgrade. And if nothing happens uh, over the next year or so, I mean, what what are possible solutions to get us out of this trap? Before going to the solutions, let me just interrupt this a little bit and, and say that that the reason why the deficit hurts in practice to for people in general is that the money the government is spending less money on things that are related to us and our well-being you know like education and healthcare are two examples of the basic things that the government should be spending good money on and good infrastructure so that we don't have sewage flooding whenever it's raining etc so every time that the government is faced by deficit all these people, including the political class, the economic elite, the IMF, everyone is like, no, you have to control the deficit, which means that you cannot spend more, which basically means austerity, you know, spend the least possible on the things that you have to spend money on. And this means that the population is increasing. We have, of course, refugees and migrant workers and everyone who is relying on some sort of social services in the country. But this, these social services are not the place for investment by the government. So if we're spending the same amount of money over the years, this means that we're spending much less because there are more people and we have to spend more. So in practice, this means bad lighting for the roads. It means bad water. It means bad electricity, obviously, because they did not invest in, in proper electricity production when they had to in, in 1990 onwards and then it means also that all kind of education educational services that a huge section of the population relies on are getting worse and deteriorating and this is what McKinsey told us in the report we're not anymore an educational haven we're deteriorating deteriorating really bad and on the healthcare sector we've seen a lot of bad stories recently of course and can I just piggyback on that a little bit to point something else out so with, with this, there, there's always winners and losers, right? So when the government is in the deficit, you're talking about all these losers, and it's broadly speaking, the public. Well, who's the winners? Well, the Lebanese government is servicing debt that is owed to somebody. Somebody is making money off of this. And who is that? The commercial banks. Yeah, it's just some 60% of the debt is is owned by commercial banks. And, and this may be banks themselves, or it may be, you know, individuals who invest through their bank. Uh, but certainly people with enough capital to put some of that capital away in this long-term uh, investment vehicle. 
Absolutely. It's a situation that's just gotten completely out of control from the public finance side, from the public debt side, and from however you want to measure it out, the relationship between the private sector and the investors who are buying this debt, who are continuing to finance the bad behavior of the states. And I guess to put it simply, if we think about an economy in which the banks uh, make their money out of the government, there might be something wrong in this. You know, if the banks are lending to private investors who are creating, you know, companies and then producing value, this is how banks have always created, uh, like contributed to economic growth. But when banks are making their own profits from the government, which means eventually from taxpayer money, then this whole circle of capital accumulation is happening on the expense of people who are funding the government in the first place. But there are some potential solutions that are not going to be easy, but things like fixing the failing public utility, EDL, through a sort of public-private partnership financing scheme where a company comes in and uh, with certain guarantees from the state contractually and offers financing and construction and sometimes operation of the utility of a new power plant. Um, and this you know, generation capacity increase from a new power plant can close the gap and we can spend uh, less money on subsidizing EDL, on buying expensive fuel imports from our own pockets on private generators. But these are big structural issues, big structural fixes in terms of the import capabilities of new energy sources and in terms of getting people on the same page to put together these offer contracts and, and build new power plants. Uh, and, these and you things get- take time. You hit the nail on the head there, getting people together, right? Yes, this everybody's known we need to reform EDL for ages, for decades, right? Basically since the end of the Civil War. But it's never been done because the politicians can't agree on it. it yes, the technical solution's right there, but nobody can agree, like, to just get it done. They can't agree on, you know, d- to be cynical— Uh, They can't agree on dividing up the spoils. Absolutely. Uh, Electricity is a huge value chain, four to six billion dollars, however you want to measure it, between, you know, generators, between uh, fuel imports, between all these different components of the value chain. And it it has, you know, through the actions of the current minister of economy or the caretaker minister of economy in cracking down on generators, uh, you know, some progress is being made. But we'll see how exactly that plays out in terms of what we end up paying out of our pockets between the two, between uh, private generators and our, our bills uh, for those and uh, our, our bill from the state utility. And talking then about the budget, then I don't I don't see this as like a slam dunk for fixing the budgetary problems, though. No, no. I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I, it's not a slam dunk. Uh, it's uh, it's an easy layup, but we're on you know, the baseline of the opposite side of the court and we need to dribble all the way down and we have huge defenders and, you know, LeBron James standing in our way and everything like that. It's not going to be easy, but in I'm, terms I'm of... I'm imagining all of Lebanese, all of Lebanon's politicians like on a basketball court right now, like Nabi Berri decked out and Michelle Aoun. I can't imagine them being that athletic, but... They're old. Yeah. yeah they had they're the football really game old. a couple of, like maybe five, six years back. Uh, they had a nice football game. If you remember, Harir was playing and a lot of MPs and stuff. You should watch that. 
But like back to the economy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> to fix back to the topic at hand. Yeah. To fix the issue, I guess, apart from EDL, which is reducing el- some of the expenditure and not all of it, of course, because uh, eliminating the subsidies for EDL is a very regressive action unless it's very well calculated. Who are you supporting and for how long? Right. The problem with the EDL subsidies now is that they're distributing the, the benefits to people um, regardless of whether they need it or not based on consumption if you consume more you're benefiting more in terms of value from EDL what should happen is a reform of the subsidies in a way that protects the poorest until they have full electricity pro- uh, flow without the need for generators uh, and this is not what's been recommended by a lot of people we should be careful uh, we should dis- distinguish between these two you know different recommendations but apart from EDL which is only one part of it some people also the same kind of people are uh, who recommend uh, eliminating subsidies and privatizing EDL are also recommending things like freeze the wages in the public sector. Why do you keep increasing the wages? And we don't, but we did it once since 1997. But the issue is that we're not increasing these wages with inflation. So this means that people's wages are actually getting lower with time, not higher. But they are still recommending that we freeze the wages. Another issue, very dangerous recommendation, is freezing employment in the, in the public sector, which means that officially institutions cannot hire more people. So if uh, the finance ministry wants to have better inspection, it cannot hire better or more inspectors, which we know that it desperately needs. And it means that the public health ministry as well will not be able to offer more people who would be monitoring food security and things like that. These things matter. Wage freezing public sector employment is a very common, although extremely dangerous recommendation, I think, in my opinion. But the other side of the situation, apart from from, from reducing expenditure, is increasing revenues for the state. And uh, apart from that, which we're already doing very well, increasing our debt, the other way, main way in which we can in- increase revenues is reforming the tax system. And fuller tax collection. There's something like half of the taxes uh, for businesses uh, are not paying and so you know capturing or increasing even things like point of service VAT tax where you know certain businesses in certain areas of the country wherever they are are not uh, contributing so uh, in addition to maybe having uh, a shoring up of the public revenue side by different measures to have uh, a more egalitarian tax uh, regime at the same time as that you need to continue to increase the efficiency of tax collection. Yes, definitely. Tax collection issues is also an important factor. But as you were saying, some people are not paying the VAT and these are not consumers who are buying things from supermarkets. So don't blame like normal citizens. It's businessmen who are trying to get away from it while having making contracts with other businessmen, usually buying supplies and not paying the VAT, etc. So it happens, it happens on the level of businesses rather than consumers. This is important to note because VAT is usually linked to consumption and, and things that we buy. But as you're saying, like the issue of revenue is really important because we have the capacity as a country to be taking much more money from tax why are we not doing that this is the main question right we talked about it last episode with the McKinsey report that did not propose any progressive tax reform except adding a tax on tobacco which is not progressive because it will mainly hurt consumers of tobacco but why are we not increasing taxes on corporate income you know why are the banks who made in 2017 1.2 billion dollars in in net profits and just net profits why are these people only paying 20% of the net profits? 
in taxes. Why don't we have a marginal tax rate? For example, that when a company makes more than $100 million, it has to pay maybe 70% or 80% of that money because it's over $100 million and nobody needs more than that. So my thought on all of these proposals is that we still keep coming back to the same problem though, right? That these are, okay, obvious technical things that could be done, but our politicians have not been able to enact any of them, even though they have known for at least 15 years, like all of these ideas, at least 15 years, that they need to, these things need to be implemented in order to get the, their, the fiscal house in order. My worry is that they're not going to actually figure any of this stuff out. And that means, well, we're going to come back to debt servicing and perhaps not being able to pay that at some point in the future, which means a default. Oh, yeah, I would agree that the debt situation we find ourselves in today is an accumulation of non-activity by the state over the past two decades, three decades, even, you know, if you want to say back into the Civil War, even a bit before that, where there's this whole long period where the state can't get together, the politicians can't get together to make even constitutionally mandated uh, legislations. And the, the prognosis for Lebanon, I would say, is not great. The situation economically and fiscally is very bad. And um, something does have to give the said reform from last year, the said plans that were fleshed out last year, you know, the likelihood of anything positive related to that coming continues to diminish day by day. And the French minister, foreign minister recently said that you know, France uh, may no longer be in a position to commit to the financial pledges that it made at said. So, you know, things are getting darker. We're deeper and deeper into the tunnel and the light keeps getting further and further away. I, I agree with both of you. It's a matter of political will. But you have to, to, to be clear that politicians will not do anything revolutionary unless they are really forced to do that, you know. And this is why I think a lot of people are, are interested in, in protesting now and going to the streets. Because they're thinking, okay, if they cannot f- form a government in such a uh, moment of like economic crisis, how can they possibly take progressive action on the economic sector level it's impossible you know i cannot imagine why they would uh, come up with a progressive tax reform unless so many people are are give them the option of either doing that or stay in the streets until they do that or pressure them in all possible ways in terms of campaigning and indirect action until they do that and why would they think of a debt plan or restructuring or rescheduling that works and makes sense for everyone unless so many people are, are forcing them to do that. If we keep the economic conversation to a very small elite uh, that is benefiting from the economic model that's currently in place, then we will never have any any positive change. Well, I mean, the, the pressure can come from below, as you say, or it can come from that economic model just no longer making sense. And, oh, oh my God, we're about to go over this, uh, you know, the ship of state is about to go over the waterfall and, it, and everybody's going to lose everything. Uh, that can also pressure them, right? Yeah, but that's something that we will also pay the price for. And this is what we should try to prevent, right? The collapse of the economic model is good for the end of the economic model, but it's bad for everyone who has not been benefiting but will also lose when it happens. Yeah, I would agree. The collapse of the economy is not something to look forward to, and the devaluation of the currency is not something to look forward to because normal people who uh, need the Lebanese lira to buy a dollar's worth of bread are uh, going to be amongst the biggest losers. Yeah, and, and, and this is my biggest worry, though, that like n- 
people aren't going to be able to make that deal before we go over the cliff. Yeah, uh, that's what it seems like since, you know, we're 30, 40 years into this problem. Okay. <laughs> Lots of All right. Huh? <laughs> but, um, and, uh, and on that very hopeful note, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I look forward to an appearance in uh, season three. Congratulations, by the way. The last time I was on the show, we were in uh, Ben's uh, little pantry and it was September and it was hot and cramped and very uncomfortable. And this is, you know, this new studio is uh, uh, quite the upgrade. So I look forward to uh, more episodes listening and uh, maybe one or two more episodes uh, appearing. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We will be back next week with a brand new episode for you. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Jeremy Arbid. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.